Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello everybody and welcome to GodPod 69. Which is very nearly our allotted span, isn't it? It is. Should we retire ourselves? After <laughs> or just die. Or just die. <laughs> <laughs> if we haven't already. <laughs> 70. Answers on a postcard, please. Requests <laughs> to come in as whether we should <laughs> um, retire ourselves or not. But anyway, we are here in uh, our usual little studio with uh, the three home team, which is Michael Lloyd. Hello. And Jane Williams. Hello. And me, Graham Tomlin. And uh, we are we are faced with uh, our usual... Um, Array of uh, tea and coffee, and actually today we got pastries, haven't we? We it's have. Very exciting. Which we yes. nicked from someone else who was eating them just down the road. Uh, and an uneaten banana. Yeah, which Mike <laughs> has used. Looking as a, healthy. As a spoon to dunk his tea bag in, which is rather strange. I also noticed on the wall of our studio, I think, saying no food or drink, which means we're probably uh, transgressing, aren't we? No, I think it's just the bit where the actual the person doing the actual work uh, goes. Right. It's near the machines. Yes. And yeah, it's okay. the technological inner sanctum. So we're, 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 we're not sinning. Well, we almost certainly are, but <laughs> not necessarily in that, that respect. Way, no, no. <laughs> That's a relief to know. Uh, anyway, um, thank you again, everybody, for all the uh, emails that you sent in. Um, a really good set of questions come in for this mm. uh, episode. So it's been quite hard to try to choose um, the uh, questions that we're, we're going to try to address today. But we have managed to um, whittle them down to a select group of two or three. Never, you never quite know how long we're, we're going to go on for. on for. Exactly. But uh, the, the first one we're going to do is... Um, I don't know when you, you're listening to this, but um, we are in the Christian season between Ascension and Pentecost. And actually, this is a question that came in through Twitter. This is changing times, you see. When we did GodPod number one, Twitter didn't exist. And uh, wow. It's quite a good thing, isn't it? Because they have to be much shorter questions, they don't know. they? They do. It's, it's very good discipline. But anyway, what happened was um, I got a, a tweet from one of our former... What's the difference between a tweet and a Twitter? Um, well, Twitter is the thing. Oh. A tweet is the, is the actual... An individual sort of message you send on Twitter as a tweet, I think. Okay, very good. Does that make sense? Oh, I, I'm in we weren't listening. <laughs> <laughs> as always. Um, but uh, I got a tweet from one of our former uh, contributors, uh, Maeve Sherlock, Baroness Maeve Sherlock, who um, uh, said, "You know, time to do another God Pod." And I said, "We're about to do one." She said, uh, "I said, I said, any any questions?" And she said, "What about ascension?" Um, the whole thing of ascension, the doctrine of ascension, never quite understood that. And what's all that about? So really, that's I think it's a very good question and um, one that we might have a go at. And um, this whole idea that um, Jesus uh, ascends into heaven at the end of the story, um, it always feels a little bit bit odd because you get the, the you know the, the cross, the resurrection, sort of two big big events in in um, uh, the sort of. Um, uh, the story of Jesus. And the ascension feels a little bit like a, a sort of stage direction. You've got to get him off the scene somehow. A bit like At least it wasn't pursued by a bear. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And um, so, you know, there's a, there's a way if he sort of shoots off like some space rocket into the into the sky and, and so on. So what's going on there? Is it significant theologically? Is it just a convenient way to get him off the scene? Um, or how do we understand ascension? So that's the question. It certainly is significant theologically. And, and 
um, but it also, uh, according to the Gospels, happened. So um, that, that's where you actually have to start, as with the resurrection. It's not a, a good, lot, lot not of a good idea. Significant of, things did happen. Yes, didn't they, but it's quite. I think it's quite important <laughs> to say that it's not that we had this good idea and thought we have to get him off the stage somehow. It's what um, the first witnesses said happened. That there was a period of time in which Jesus was still physically available to them in a particular place at a particular time, and although that physical resurrection body is clearly has strange characteristics it is a body um, and then there's a period after which he's not physically available um, and uh, and therefore becomes available in a different way mm. to everybody sure oh, oh, yeah michael well, my chapel, I, I'm chaplain at Queen's College in Oxford, and we have a wonderful stained glass window of the Ascension, which is uh, some disciples, a cloud and two feet. Oh, yes, I love those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> um, feet two feet dangling the from the cloud. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I think they, those kind of pictures are quaint, but they can be misleading, too, as if heaven is a geographical location. Mm. Um, just above the earth and therefore the only way he could get there was uh, by going up um, and I think it's important to say that Christians have always believed that um, that is that is a pictorial way of expressing the moving from one dimension to another dimension um, and, and not necessarily to be taken literally rather like we talk about a sunrise even though we know that the sun doesn't rise yes. it's that we go around the sun It's very interesting though I think in some of the some of the manuscripts of the, the Gospels, that, that phrase where it says, you know, while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. Some of the manuscripts don't have that last phrase, you know, he was carried up into heaven. It's just he withdrew from them, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it mm -hmm. may not be anything, but it may just be there's a consciousness there of this is figurative language, the up language. Um, and I think it's a very interesting question to think, well, what would you have seen mm -hmm. if you were there on the day? Mm -hmm. Would you have seen Jesus taking off like a sort of space rocket into the into the skies? Or actually, would you have seen Jesus disappear? Um, that's, maybe it's hard to answer that question. But, mm. but. And, and the cloud is always a symbol of God's presence, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Uh, or not necessarily always a symbol, yeah. sometimes a, it's, a, yeah. a, 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 the form that his presence mm. takes. And what we're talking about is Jesus transferring from one dimension of reality to, to another, rather than going up yes. spatially. Yes. Yes. It's, the, it's the transference, the, the, the change of the resurrected body of Jesus from the world that we know to to another dimension of reality and nor is, is that every bit as real as the one that we know yes and nor is that a modern kind of rationalization of the old ancient text i mean athanasius who's what fourth century um said when jesus was seated at the right hand of the father he did not thereby put the father on his left mm. 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 Uh, when he knew that yeah and and sophisticated christian thinkers have always know that this is not literal geographical language that we're using here. But what's clear in the New Testament accounts is that uh, whatever it was the disciples saw, they knew it was final. So they they knew that they weren't going to see the, resurre re the resurrected Jesus again. Mm. They'd had the series of meetings with Jesus over a period of time when he'd sometimes been there and sometimes not. And uh, And what you see in Acts is a group of people who know that that physical presence of Jesus is is gone yeah. and that they are now uh, given a particular task mm. in relation to bearing witness to Jesus's earthly life so whatever it was that happened they knew it was something dramatic and something yes, yes. yes and yeah. even Paul who 
saw the risen lord recognizes it was in a, of a different yeah. order from the sort of thing that had been yeah. seen before and it was he was as one untimely born it mm. was it, it yeah. wasn't the usual way but you might you might think i guess some people might say well actually you know, it'd be quite nice if the physical body of jesus was still around you could go to jerusalem or nazareth or whatever and actually see him and visit him and, and the fact that he's now invisible and is and so on is actually a bit of a problem for christian faith because you can't see him so i guess that brings us back to the question of what is the theological significance mm-hmm. of ascension we've explored a little bit about what actually happened what is this what, you know what what what's what are we talking about in ascension but but what does it mean theologically and that's where jesus own statement uh, in john's gospel about it is good for you that i go away um, we'd have thought it'd be very bad for us for mm. him to go away, but mm. he says it's good for you that I go away because uh, that way I can send the Spirit to you. It's almost as if, and the, the only kind of picture I can find to help understand that is, um, it's almost as if he, he's secured the bridge on this side and was now taking the rope back to the other side of the, mm. uh, the, the, the chasm to secure it on the other side, that somehow the ascension... Um, forges that bridge he came over at the incarnation and then he crossing back uh to the other side of the bridge the other dimension mm-hmm. through the ascension and that somehow secures the bridge and enables traffic mm-hmm. to pass more freely between the two it also of course i mean the thing about a physical body is it can usually only be in one place um and so the people who had the extraordinary privilege of living with the with the the earthly jesus um, saw him mm. during that time, but all the other people in the world at that time didn't see him mm. and yeah. couldn't get to know him except um, through stories about him. Um, but So one of the theological things the Ascension says is that Jesus is now available everywhere. He's not limited in time and space mm. to a particular point, um, but that it is that Jesus who, who was mm. um, physically present whom we now can all get to know through the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why Ascension leads up to... Pentecost, exactly. why the, the sort of ascension period is a period for praying for the Spirit to come at Pentecost, so this nine-day period between the day of ascension and day of Pentecost, because the two are very strongly linked. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the, the other thing that strikes me about the ascension is that it it's kind of like the, the kind of vindication of Jesus, the final vindication mm-hmm. of Jesus. I mean, there's that text, I think, in um, Ephesians where it talks about you know, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Uh, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So the ascension is, in a sense, the, the kind of coronation mm. of Jesus, the raising of Jesus to the, the right hand of the Father, and the, the final vindication that says that, yes, you know, Jesus Christ is now Lord of heaven and earth. Mm. Which actually is actually is good news for us because nothing else is. No one else is. You know, I'm not the most important person in the world. Cancer is not the final word. Death is not the final word. No government, no tyrant has the final word. Jesus Christ does. So the ascension actually says is very good news for us because it is this vindication, this coronation of Jesus as the one who who has the last say in all things. And I think that's. <clears throat> so in the ancient world was so visibly expressed by the throne wasn't it which would be incredibly imposing the assyrian throne or whatever probably the roman <laughs> emperor's throne as well yep. um and, and to say no it's not caesar who sits on that throne it is jesus who mm. sits on that throne is um hugely significant in terms of it being politically subversive yep. Yep. um i was hearing about edith stein um 
the great Jewish Christian thinker um, at the time of the um, Nazi kind of rise to power, um, where somebody came up behind her and said, Heil Hitler, and she said, Jesus Christ be praised. And that was a, sub- a politically subversive act that is very much an ascension act in a way. And she probably paid for that with yeah. her life. What about the significance of the fact that it is Jesus's body that goes? Because I guess another way of doing this might have been you know, a bit like a sort of butterfly with a, with a chrysalis, you know, the idea that, that his soul somehow escapes from his body, leaves his body behind, his soul ascends to God. But actually the ascension story seems to say that his, his body yeah. ascends, not just his soul. Mm. And um, what's the significance of that, do you think? Well, I think twofold, really. One is, is, is a real affirmation of our physicality and an insistence that we, we, our bodies are an essential part of who we are. They're not a shell. They're not a husk. Uh, they're not the vehicle for the soul. They are an essential part of what it is to be human. And therefore, he cannot go up, using the up language, mm-hmm. without it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's... it's um, a way of saying that our physicality is a, is a, a God-given part of who we are. Uh, but secondly, it actually says there is humanity now um, in on the throne of heaven. There is humanity now in the person of God. Um, God cannot now throw off humanity or cre- the created order without abandoning himself because it's now intrinsically part of who he is, who yeah. he has made himself to be. Mm. And that it's really Jesus, you know, that it that actually when we see God face to face, it will be the human face of Jesus that we see. Um, mm. uh, and and mm. that 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 gives us some assurance of what it is that we know about God. Um, it, it actually assures us that the character of God as witnessed to by Jesus is the character of God. Um, and not something that that we could find completely yeah. different. It's yes. actually intrinsic yes. to God. Yeah. I think the other thing about this ascension that always strikes me is it makes it clear that Jesus is for sharing. Um, when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, don't hang on to me, I think that's said to all of us. Mm. Um, our, our, our Jesus is everybody's Jesus. Jesus is, mm. is, is for sharing. Jesus is for the whole world. Yeah. And the incarnation was for the fulfillment of God's purposes mm. For everybody, not not just nice for us. <laughs> it is a, I mean, it is a real sort of affirmation of humanity, isn't it? There, there is one of us yeah. on the throne of heaven, which is quite a thought when yes. you think of it. That you know, um, one of our race. It's a bit like you know when when the you know when um, Pope uh, John, John Paul, Paul II yes. became Pope. You know, the Polish nation had mm. this great boost of. Joy, because you know one of us is now on the throne of St Peter, mm. um, whereas they'd all been Italians before that. Um, <laughs> and you can you can sense that sense of pride that you get. You know, one of you it's like the Olympic Games. You know, one of us won the on the podium. Yeah, exactly, that's right. Yep. And we can say that as a human race that one of us sits on the throne of heaven because yep. of the ascension. Yes. Well. Very good cant around the ascension. So thank you for our, our, our first Twitter question, uh, but I guess we get some other ones as well. And um, uh, so um, the second question to go on to is um, one that uh, came through from um, Claire. Claire Pay is her name, and she uh, asks a question, including various other bits and pieces. She does say um, earlier on that she found... Our comments on hamsters in heaven very helpful. Hamsters but, yeah. or Hampstead? 
No hamsters. Okay. Uh, following the untimely demise of my daughter's hamster at the foot of her younger brother. Whether it's oh. under the foot of a younger brother oh. or, or quite <laughs> yes. what, I don't know. Yes. It's a gruesome thought. But um, uh, anyway, well, glad our glad the hamster is... Um, do we, do we think the hamster was in heaven? Hamster is We'd beloved s- by God. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Anyway, the question that she does come on to a little bit later on is um, is this one, which is very interesting. She's been reading Cafe Theology, Mike's book. Excellent. People should do that. Well. <laughs> or at least buy one. If you they must. should read it because it generates questions that we can then answer. <laughs> exactly, that's right. Yeah. So if you haven't read Cafe Theology, it might be, it might be a bad thing to do. Might not. Uh, by Michael Lloyd. Um, but anyway, she asks this and she says, I, I found Mike's chapter on evil particularly interesting, as we all know. Um, and uh, she then says, one of the top comments Mike has made on the God book came when you were talking about how much God loves us and how important that is for self-worth. And Mike said that that doesn't address people who value their self-worth too highly already, which <laughs> rang true with me. Much of Christian teaching is aimed at building up those with low self-esteem. Uh, where does that leave people who recognize their brilliance and struggle with pride? And that is really interesting mm. and quite a good question because yeah. there are people who struggle with a sense of inferiority and, and, and low self-esteem. There are s- some people who don't struggle with that at all and have a very strong, robust sense of their own value and and uh, ability and talents and, and everything else. So um, so how does Christian faith, Christian teaching address that side of the equation? And of course, there are people in whom the one is the flip side of the other yeah. and that the pride actually masks an insecurity. Um but but it seems to me that the the Christian gospel addresses both rather rather well. I mean, there's the famous Lewis comment about how you are a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, and that is enough to exalt the lowliest person, and it's enough to humble the, the most exalted person. I'm not quoting it exactly, but that that's the gist of it. Because there is, you know, we are made in the image of God, and that is um, the grounds of the most extraordinary affirmation. Uh, that God values us infinitely. He values us enough, enough to die for us. Um, he values us enough to want a relationship with us. That is massive, massive affirmation. On the other hand, he calls us to worship him. And worship is the great uh, underminer of pride. Because it's saying, I am not the center of the universe. I am not. Life is not organized around me. It's organized around God. It, and and we are only truly ourselves when we align ourselves worshipfully before him. Um, so I think it, it, it does both. And it needs to do both those things to, to all of us, actually, in different ways. It's interesting, though, that there, there is quite a lot in Jesus's interaction with people that suggests that we're looking in the wrong places for what God values. I mean, mm. if just look at the Beatitudes, for example. The people whom Jesus says are blessed are definitely not the people that we think are blessed. Mm. Um, and that is something that we need to take seriously, that that the things that we value very highly may actually not be a, at all religiously significant. Um, so actually trying to watch and see what it is that God appears to value in us. Mm. Um, and and I think that worship is a very good clue to that um, uh, about you know it's so that it's not entirely about our self sufficiency and our um, self dependence, but about our our willingness to be drawn out of ourselves. Um, but I think that is you know for those of us who are you know 
perfect. It is it, uh, actually <laughs> very significant to to watch Jesus interacting with people who thought they were okay. Yes. Um, yeah, that's very that's very interesting because I think there's I think there is a difference between self esteem and pride. Mm. Hmm. I think there's nothing oh, wrong yes, with self esteem. There there's mm. nothing wrong with a, a sense that I am valuable. valuable. I have talents. I have gifts. There's things I can contribute and. And so on. That's that's a quite ro- proper thing. See, the question is where we get our self-esteem from. Mm. Uh, what's it built on? Is it built on pride? In other words, a pride in my own ability, my own reputation, my own gifts. That's where my self-esteem comes from. That I, you know, I, I, I build my self-esteem on the fact that I can do this, that, or the other. That I, I look good. That I'm mm. talented, intelligent, everything else. Or does my Which self-esteem? Well, Dear you. listeners, you, <laughs> yeah. it must be time for the contract to come up again. That time of the year, oh, oh. just keep on track here. It's very difficult with these people. Um, or, or, or do I build my self-esteem on the kind of things you were saying, Mike, which is the fact that I am loved by God, valued, created, that Jesus died for me, He rose again for me, that I have a, a, a destiny as part of His future. Because I guess the the first and the, and you know and obviously you can get self esteem from both of those mm. things. The question is which is the most durable and which is the most lasting. And because actually building self esteem on reputation is a very risky thing to do, mm. because of course reputation can disappear pretty quickly. You know, b- building self esteem on on income or career or salary or or, or um, you know popularity or fame or whatever. All of those things are very fragile things that can can fall apart. Which I think is. It's a bit like Jesus' story of the, of, you know, the two builders, you know, building on, on on the rock. We've all got to build something. We build our house. We build our life on something. We we build a self a sense of self esteem on something, and that's quite right. The question is, what what, what do we build on? Mm-hmm. Yes, and if you do it on that which is not durable, um, <clears throat> then the danger is that you have a kind of anxiety driven workaholism or or, yeah. or desperately seeking relationships kind of thing because it's never enough sure. and yeah. you never know you have to keep it going otherwise it's going to collapse yeah. uh, whereas the grounding it in mm-hmm. the eternal love of god is secu- secure and happens to be infinite as well which mm-hmm. is yeah. another benefit but i suppose there has been a sort of christian strategy overt or covert in the past that you ha- that you have to pull people down so they know they need god yeah. so you have to undermine people enough to the, you know so that they mm. you have to point out their sinfulness and worthlessness and that mm. kind of thing before mm. they can realize that they need god and i i i don't think that has to be true mm. um there's a, a lovely phrase in one of bonhoeffer's letters from letters and papers from prison when he says that god wants to meet us in our strength he doesn't actually need us to become dependent children mm. before mm. he can meet us. That actually God enjoys what we're good at mm. and values what we're good at uh, and might really um, get pleasure. Um, that, that lovely story yeah. of the runner who says, do you remember in Chariots of Fire, when yeah. I run, I feel God's pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. But, but knowing that what we're naturally good at is giving God pleasure, again, it takes it out of being all about me, doesn't it? It yeah. takes it into a relationship rather than yeah. um, a self-esteem yeah. that's based entirely on oneself. Well, it is. I mean, it's a thing that Pascal, the French apologist, theologian, mathematician, genius of all kinds in the 17th century, used to write about quite a bit in the, in the Pensée, because he, he used to write about this, this, if you're to understand humanity properly, you have to understand... And the French words he used were, you know, the, the grandeur and the misère of humanity, mm. the kind of grandeur, mm. the greatness 
but also the misery mm. of humanity. And, and if, you, if you only get one of those two things, you've misunderstood the nature of human life. That we are, you know, we have grandeur, we have a, a kind of um, a greatness about us in the sense that we are made by God. In God's image. In God's mm. image, redeemed through Christ and so on. There is mm. this, this greatness, dignity about us. But at the same time, there is this deep misery about us because we turn away from from God. And you have to understand both of those things in their fullness. It's not like a, a kind of, you know, sort of mush in the middle. It's actually understanding the extremes mm. of our Mm. greatness and our, and our misery and once you once you get those um then you can understand humanity then you can understand yourself and i suppose different people of us largely because of background and other things that are likely to be at one end of the scale or the other we're very conscious of the misery and the shame and, and, and the, the, the and everything else or we're very conscious of our greatness and, and, and goodness and but actually it's not that we need to grasp one or the other we need to grasp both and I think the other thing is we need to grasp other people's greatness and grandeur yeah. and splendor. Yeah. Um, and one of the, you know, what to turn this around a bit, what does a humble person look like? What does humility look like? Mm, it nice. looks like not somebody who's not believing their own worth and value, not at all. It's somebody who's so confident in their mm. own value that they can recognize and rejoice in everybody else's value, everybody else's gifts, everybody else's yeah. splendor. Somebody who's not self-absorbed, mm. even though they are where, you know, have a huge self-esteem. Yeah. Uh, so a humble person, I think, is you can always tell them because they're interested in you. Mm. And actually, hum- humble people can build community in a way that pride people ca- proud people can't. Yes. I mean, pride is, it seems to me the most lonely of sins mm. because ultimately you want to be the top of the pile. You want to be the only one who's up right up there and basically it, it, it isolates you from everybody else because you're, you're in competition being yes exactly yeah. you're in competition yeah. with everybody else you feel everyone else is a threat i have to be the best whereas humility is quite happy with other people being better than you at certain things and and has a sort of as you say a proper comfortableness within your own skin it's not mm. saying oh i'm terrible like in the uriah heap type approach to life which is saying oh i'm such a humble person i'm no, i'm worthless I'm, I'm useless it's not saying that it's having a proper understanding of your own abilities but also your own weaknesses and uh and that kind of person it's much 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 more fun to be with that kind of person mm. yes, than yes. someone who's trying to constantly trying to put you down because they want to prove how much better than you they are mm. and and at that level at that extreme level of course pride becomes literally murderous i mean somebody like mm. king herod wasn't prepared to tolerate yeah. Yeah. um and any threat and therefore if you were yeah. a son or a wife or a, a toddler you were in trouble yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which goes back to our thought about how important it is that tyrants like King Herod and tyrants down the years who are essentially prideful people are not the final word. Yes. The ascended Jesus is the final word, who is the exemplar of humility. The one who washed the disciples' feet. Exactly. The one who has the marks of the nails. Yeah. That tied it together rather well, that, didn't it? That's a very good link. <laughs> Do you like that? Yeah, I like that very, very much. Very good. Yes, because my contract's coming up too. <laughs> very good. Anyway, thank you, uh, Claire, for that really interesting question about pride and, and self-esteem. Um, and uh, the other one we wanted to, to get on to towards the end of uh, Godpod 69 is, um, well, this is a real humding of this one. And uh, I'm afraid it's one actually that's, that's come through in various different forms. And we've always put it to one side because it's too difficult. <laughs> but it's really free will and predestination. And, uh, well, let me read a couple of... Um, uh, emails that have come in. One from um, Susie. Uh, Susie, who um, 
uh, writes this. As I'm reading the Bible over and over again, it seems that God controls everything and causes everything to happen. Both the writer of the Bible and the biblical figures all seem to think that God makes everything happen, both good and bad. There were lots of circumstances where the writer says that God hardened his heart or softened his heart. Uh, I get the impression that these people never asked for their hearts to be softened, changed or hardened, just that God did it. But that seems to contradict what I've always been taught, that we have free will and that God doesn't interfere with it. It also calls into question if God causes bad things to happen and so on. So are our choices really our own? Has he really charted the path ahead of me so that whatever I decide and do has been predetermined? And uh, so that's one form of it. The other question is um, someone called Ollie, Oliver May, who simply asks, uh, is it possible in Christianity to argue that both free will and predestination exist together at the same time? So there it is. Well, um, I'll come clean and say um, I just don't believe in predestination. I'll qualify that in a minute. But (laughs) um, in the sense that if by predestination you mean that God chooses all that's going to happen then it's not true and um, there are not many knockdown arguments in theology but here's one Um, God doesn't always go his way we know that because people sin Mm. Uh, and therefore he doesn't always get his way sin is not God's will he tells us not to do things we do them therefore we have freedom (laughs) Uh, we have freedom to do things that he doesn't want us to do uh, that just seems to be given in the very occurrence of sin. Um, having said that I don't agree, believe in predestination, let me rephrase that. I, it seems to me that it is Christ who is the predestined one. He is the one who is chosen before all time. He is the one uh, who is elect. And we become elect, says Ephesians 1, in when we become part of him so predestination rather than being a a denial of our free will is actually uh, and something that we kind of find very difficult i think it's a glorious truth and the glorious truth is that when we become part of christ we don't just inherit his future an eternal destiny of being in the presence of god we also inherit his past his eternal lovedness his eternal part uh, in in the the eternal love of god and and therefore we are eternally rooted in that and that to me is what predestination rightly understood means um yeah so i'll leave it there and see what I, others i mean i suppose i'd also like to to pick up um uh, on the, uh, did was the phrase used about god interfering um i can't quite but it but, was um where are we now um yeah, god controls everything causes everything to happen um, yes, the God doesn't interfere. Oh, God doesn't interfere with our free will. With our free will, because it's interesting, isn't it, that when when we talk to, if I were to ask Mike's advice about something, or if Mike were to, you know, he and I would have a conversation about what I was going to do, I wouldn't call that interfering. Hmm. I would call that part of a relationship. Depending on how I did it, I suppose. Well, indeed, yes. <laughs> um, but but why must it be God interfering if God is one of the aspects of how we make? decisions if if the presence of god and our relationship with god is part of how we make decisions that isn't god interfering with our free will that's our that's us freely ad- admitting that god is one of the the dynamics one of the dynamics of how we live our lives um, and that if god exists then that will be the case even for people who don't recognize that god is one of the dynamics of how we live our lives 
Yeah, that, sorry, Mike, were you going to um, <clears throat> respond? It, well, just to take up the, one of the points that the question <clears throat> mentioned was the idea of God hardening our hearts yeah. and saying people didn't yeah. ask to have their hearts hardened. Although there is, of course, you know, before the, the passage in which we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we're told that he hardened his own heart. Mm. Um, so in a sense, I think the initiative... Pharaoh in, hardened his own heart. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, yes, not God hardened his own heart. Good to clarify that point. Um, but the initiative with, with evil and with sin is always ours. It's never God's mm. because he's good. That's That's rock bottom kind of... What, what, sure. what you are yep. you from yep. is the goodness and the, and the beauty and the holiness of God. And the language of hardening of hearts seems to me, it seems to me that we, we can get to a point in life where we've essentially created a kind of crust around our own heart or, or we've lost the ability to hear God speaking to us by repeated habits of mm. inattention, by repeated habits of of um, turning away from God. Now, that doesn't mean God can't break through, but it does mean we, we can develop a kind of spiritual deafness, mm -hmm. which means it becomes almost impossible for us to, to, to hear God. And that, that, the language of the hardening of the heart that is, 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 seems to be to convey, in a sense, something that happens to us as we turn away from God repeatedly again and again and again in our lives. And so um, where it becomes to the point where it's quite hard to turn back, not impossible, but but hard but 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 very hard and, and and so in that sense you can see how you know as if the way God has made us is such that we that when we do that kind of exercise over a long period of time our hearts do become hardened it's not that we've chosen to harden them in in a kind of it's a, something something else is at work here which is part of the way God has made us and made the world and so that maybe helps us to understand that language as well. Although it is, it is the result of a whole lot of choices that we would have yep. made. Yeah. Exactly. Free That's choice. right. Yeah, not, yeah. Not, yeah. Not, yeah. Not, not just free one thing. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd, I'd say about predestination is that, you know, w w when you're balancing out, you know, free de predestination, free will, you know, do they work together? How do they work together? I think I do want to say at the, at the end of the day, it is God's will that wins. And that, um, that, uh, if it's somehow, you know, well, maybe maybe our free will wins, maybe God's predestination wins, I think at the end of the day, you know, God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. You know, he will bring about the final triumph of, of his will, of mm -hmm. Christ's kingdom here on earth. And uh, in a sense, what we do can't stop that happening. Um, we cannot ultimately undo, we cannot finally win mm -hmm. over against God if we set ourselves against him. Now, in a sense, how that happens and how that turns out, it seems to me is there is a role for our free will within that process. Um, but I think I still want to say that at the end of the day, it's not like it's still in doubt as to whether our free will can somehow undo God's final victory. I, I, sorry, Jane. No, I, I, I mean, I may be changing the topic slightly, so in which case you can come back quickly. But I think that predestination and free will do both exist. Um, and I want to, to, to use an idea that I've found extremely helpful. It comes from the German theologian Pannenberg, which is that um, in some sense, the, the future is the place of God's reality, the completed future of, of creation um, is where um, you, you might say is, is where God is. 
uh, and that what happens is that the whole of uh, so that, that that reality flows from the future backwards if you see it from god's kind of point of view so in god's from god's god doesn't live in the sequence of time that we live in um so for god uh, he can see all the things that are happening and have happened and will happen at once, you might say. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's very difficult to get a proper working concept of, it, of eternity, but it, it must mean at least that things don't happen in sequence mm -hmm. um, for God. God doesn't live through events as, as we do. Um, so in God's completed future eternity, whatever you want, mm -hmm. the, all of these acts that we have freely done, all these decisions we have freely taken, genuinely freely taken, are already seen and completed outside time um, so that they are known by God but not done by God God doesn't force us to do these things but can weave them all together from a point beyond the sequencing that we see does that make sense yes no I think it does make sense I mean, Augustine uses the image doesn't he of a, of a, of a poem that when you you know when you've you've memorized a poem you've got the whole poem in your head but actually when you read it out you read it out a bit at a time. line by line yeah. And it's as if that's how we experience reality, line by line. But God experiences as a, as, a, as the whole. I yes. guess that's the kind yes. of exactly. thing. Although that. the danger of that analogy is that it suggests that God simply reads out what he's already prepared yes. in his yep. mind and that we don't yep. actually contribute to it in any way. Which is yeah. absolutely not what Which I'm is, saying. No, no. quite. Yep. Um, and and I, I agree with what you were saying, Graham, with, with one slight proviso. There's always one proviso. There's always, <laughs> no. and, and that is that um, just because God wins in the end doesn't mean that if somebody chooses not to be part of that mm. that is in any way god's will yep. it's fair to say that the, the person writing the question sending in the question is is right to say that there are some passages that do seem to talk about god yep. doing good and evil um but i i think there is a, a movement within um scripture from a view in which God does everything uh, to one where he doesn't. It's very interesting that, you know, in, I think it's 2 Samuel, um, it, it, God incites David to do the census and then punishes him for doing it. Mm. Uh, when chronic, the chronicler comes along uh, and re rewrites that passage, he, he's, it's not God who, who prompts David to do the census, it's Satan. And so there's a distancing of God from anything sinful, from anything evil, um, which I think you also see the same movement in the book of Job. It's not God who does it, it's Satan who does it. Uh, and it seems to me we need to, to learn from that trajectory within Scripture. Well, there we are, predestination of free will. Not finally answered once and for all, but... Hopefully, a few Not little until eternity. perspectives <laughs> on it. So, um, well, I think we've, we've done our three questions for today. And um, uh, so thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure. And Jane. Likewise. As always. Thank you, whoever's listening to this. And uh, we'll be back for our number 70 mm. before too long, when we will finally reach our pensionable age. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and I don't think we're going to do that until we're at 19 these days. Well, right. We're going to have to get a pension for doing God Pod, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? There you go. Um, start a subscription service. Biscuits for life. Uh, that'll be it. That'll be it. Well, anyway, uh, uh, so that is uh, God Pod 69 and we'll be back again soon with the next one. That was God Pod. 
a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.